Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 118. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, I got a friend from my clubhouse. Actually, someone I met there through mutual acquaintance, Emily Kwok, Mr. Daniel Rodriguez. Daniel, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you doing, Steve? Not bad, not bad. So this might be a bit of a regurgitation for you. I think we already kind of had this conversation on clubhouse already, but... I thought it was fascinating. So some background here, you and I know each other through Emily Kwok, as we discussed earlier, and you recently had a conversation on Clubhouse about mortality, Mm -hmm. which I thought was just a fascinating topic and something that we simply don't talk about enough in jiu-jitsu. And this is a theme I've started to see explored a lot when talking to people who are getting close to, you know, the master level of jiu-jitsu, they're getting older. A lot of grapplers, they've got all of these dreams and goals and ambitions that they want to achieve when they're really, really, really young, but they never think about ultimately at the end of the day, what do they really want to achieve long term? And also, what do they really want to get out of life? And eventually everyone, you know, regardless of your situation, all of us, we're going to eventually get slapped in the face at some point with our own mortality. And we're going to have to start thinking about What do we, you know, what do we really want to get out of this life? How can we do that in the time that we have? And I'd rather that we all think about this early on in our life versus later on, right? The worst thing that Mm -hmm. happens is, you know, you never think about this. You get, you live your life without really thinking about what you want to get out of it. You're kind of just focused on minutia. And then one day you're faced with your own mortality. And at that point, for many people, they have to have this reflective moment where they realize they wasted their entire lives. And what you said on Clubhouse really resonated to me. And I think it's something that will resonate to a lot of people out there, because if we're going to be honest, a lot of the people who do jujitsu, or at least who do it seriously, is young people, right? Jujitsu in a lot of ways is a young man's sport. And many people, yes, they do grow up and graduate into that, you know, that mentor role and they achieve that level of wisdom and they start giving back to the community. But many people, they don't do that. And I would love to get your perspective just on your experiences with mortality, what that's meant to you, how that's changed your thinking and the kind of advice that you would have for other grapplers out there. So maybe with that said, Daniel, why don't you do me a favor here and just introduce yourself so that everyone is familiar with your story? Sure, 100%. My name is Daniel Rodriguez. Grew up in New York City. After graduating from high school, I went to school at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And then I left Cambridge after graduating and went to LA to pursue a 
a career in acting. At least that's what I initially wanted to. <laughs> but um, in terms of my grappling, my grappling background, I, I wrestled in high school. And then subsequently, I moved to LA and I tried out the acting thing for a while and kind of went back into the computer science major that I that I had um, studied while I was at MIT. One of my coworkers at this advertising agency that I was working at found out that he was a brown belt at the time in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You know, I had watched all of the UFCs from back in the day and, you know, kind of super geeked to know that there was a coworker there and he kind of invited me to come over to his gym and I, you know, kind of got hooked on it while I was there. So I had a, a huge period of time where I was just kind of like studying jujitsu after work every single day. And then subsequently started to get into like adventure sports as well. Like I skydived, got into base jumping and then Speaking specifically to the mortality aspect, around 2012, I found out that I had uh, cancer and, you know, just kind of like flipped my world upside down a little bit. And, you know, this is kind of like one of those situations where it was a little weird because, you know, you kind of go, in, go into life thinking that you have all of this time to accomplish like all these various goals that you may have, or you think about like retiring when you're like 60 or 80 and and, you know, here I am faced faced with this disease that can potentially like take me out in a few months. You know, that, that was kind of like the, the genesis of kind of living with intention from that, you know, going forward from that, that point, which is something I think that people, they tend to forget just because they kind of like get lost in the routine a lot of the times. But yeah, that was kind of like the beginning of it for me. Well, just so that I, I'm clear here, what is your jujitsu background? I believe you're a black belt, right? Where do you train and who are you under? Oh, yes. So the gent that got me to the gym in LA, his name was Travis Lewis. And we both became black belts under Hinato Magno. Hinato is a cousin of the Machado brothers. And he came to LA with them when they had traveled to the United States initially back in the day. And he was Jean-Jacques lead instructor for a while before opening his own gym. And so, yeah, I basically like stuck with uh, Renato for the majority of my BJJ career. Some of the accolades that I got, I, I was able to take uh, first place in the brown belt middleweight masters division. And then I took in uh, Pan Ams and then subsequently third place in the, in the black belt middleweight masters division as well. And what was the other question that you had? I'm sorry, I missed that one. That was the big thing I wanted okay. to understand was just the background to jujitsu. So this is, I mean, this strikes a little bit close to home for me because it seems like you've got a similar background to me. You know, you're a computer guy, you got into jujitsu, but you had a total veer off the path you expected to encounter in life pretty early on. And it's an interesting story because it sounds like you know, you had so much going for you at the beginning, right? You were, it sounds like you were, you know, a really accomplished athlete. You were going to some of the best computer science schools in the world. And then this tragedy kind of struck. I'd love to learn more about when that happened and what your mindset was like when that happened, you know, how you kind of dealt with that. Yeah. You know, it's like I was saying, the genesis of it was really weird. So I, I found out in 2012 and it was 33 at the time when, when I found out. So super young and the type of cancer that I have is colorectal cancer. 
And so basically, you know, not to get graphic, but essentially what it was is that, you know, like anytime I, I took a dump, I would see blood in the, in the toilet. So I had went to, you know, my, my general doctor and he had me go to another doctor and another specialist and kind of like gave me a, a little bit of a, an idea of what, you know, what was going on with me. And then they essentially prescribed me to do all this crazy like uh, treatment. They wanted me to do radiation for months and then they wanted me to do surgery, like to remove my colon and rectum. And then they wanted me to do chemotherapy after all that to get, to make sure that if there was any like, you know, cells in the body that they would essentially wipe them all out. And, you know, the first reaction is just like, I got to just get away from all of this, right? Like it's a little bit of shock, you know, just trying to like process it all. Like, what does this mean? Because if you saw me walking down the street, I would look completely healthy, you know, like I didn't feel anything weird aside from some, you know, pains and stuff like that. You know, like the disease that I had was such a slow growing kind of slow growing disease that, you know, it, it didn't really affect my day to day. Like, but that's just from my type of cancer, like other people's cancers affect them in various ways. But anyway, yeah, I was just kind of like not really understanding how to process it in the beginning. And then, you know, telling your friends about that is kind of another series of overwhelmingness. And and what I mean is just because like everybody goes into their problem solving modes. They want to, you know, hook you up with the best doctors. They want to make sure that, you know, you if you need anything that they're they're helping. And then you've got friends that are really big in holistic medicine and they're telling you you should take these supplements or that supplements or eat these foods and and then it's it's just a lot. I mean, people can relate to it right now because of what's going on with the pandemic. And it's actually like the easiest way to describe it. Like right now, we can't go anywhere. People have all of these different ideas of the supplements you should you should be taking to counteract the, the virus. And, you know, like there's all of these opinions on whether or not the, the science is actually effective or the vaccine is going to be effective. It's just it's just a mess. And so I've, I've had to experience that several times because every single time it comes back, it had come back, you know, there would be like another wave of that. It's a very appreciative energy because, you know, like I can't help but feel blessed at all the people that wanted to help me during this journey, but it's a little bit overwhelming in that respect as well. Yeah. That's something I can, I mean, I, I'm starting to kind of get my head around everyone with their best intentions. They want to help, right? And when right. you're going through a rough time, the knee-jerk reaction is to offer support and to offer help. But the thing that we often forget is, number one, everyone else and their dog is probably offering the same thing. And number two, most of us are not in a position where in a situation like this, we can actually really truly help with the problem like in the case mm -hmm. that you've provided you know it's a hard thing to solve you know and i i would be in this boat too right if you as a friend came to me and gave me this bad news i would definitely want to try to help you and i would feel obliged to say something and to offer my support but i don't really know what i would actually say you know what can i do that would actually be helpful i'm sure I probably would have all of these solutions that I'd investigated and maybe some pop culture articles that I read that I would want to regurgitate on the spot. But at the end of the day, how do I deal with that situation? You know, what can I do to support someone 
who is in that situation where they've encountered some life-changing event, maybe for the first time ever, they're coming face to face with their own mortality. This would be, I guess, a good question is what could someone on the outside do to be supportive in a situation like that without kind of coming across as being surface level? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think a lot of, a lot of what you do in, you know, kind of just to use a jujitsu as an example, it's, it's weird. Like I've used jujitsu in a lot of examples in my life in terms of, you know, analogies and just kind of like preparation. But at the end of the day, that's really what jujitsu is. It's a form of preparation, right? And, you know, a lot of times I've always reflected on, am I ever going to use this? Like I spent so much time like practicing in the gym, doing all of these techniques, yada, yada, yada. And just like, is this, is this like practical in any, in any sense? And I've always come back to the fact is if I ever use this, that's going to be a very bad, bad situation. So actually I should probably wish that I'd never did have to use it, you know, in, in a life scenario, but you know, it really is just kind of like preparation is what it's provided. And, and I think, you know, the people that are helping you to prepare, that's just kind of like the best, the best way to support. Like I, I guess the people that were around me to support me just by helping me like create some sense of normalcy in the world. Right. And I think just being there drilling with me, you know, when, when I was able to drill or just kind of like, or just actually, honestly, when you were when you were hanging out with me, just hanging out with me with with intention. You know what I mean? Because a lot of times people tend to be distracted when you're hanging out with your friend. You're on your phone, you're conversing, but you're not really engaging in conversation. Like you kind of put off moments when you can hang out because oh well, there's another week, and that kind of like speaks to like living with intention, right? Like you want to just cherish the moments that you have with your friend. And I, I think that's kind of like the ideally the, the, the most that people that, that care for me would be doing during during those times. Well, let's dig into that a little bit deeper. You talked a lot about living with intention. What does that mean? So part of it is just not really, you know, it's not to say you can't have routines, but there is there are routines that you do where you're not actually present, right? One of the things that I love about jujitsu specifically is the fact that it forces you to be present. It always forced me to just kind of like, it's a great stress reliever because it forces me to like let go of what, what all was happening during the day. Like if I had like, you know, an issue with an ex-girlfriend or an issue at work or, you know, it forces me to be like, in the moment at that at that particular time because I'm you know training with a partner and if I'm not in the moment then I'm going to get choked out or put in a bad position or whatever and so that kind of like plays into the intentionality it's just like okay I'm going to do this particular action and I'm in addition to doing that I'm going to be present doing that action and also I think part of what it means to live with intention is is to, you know, like not take, not take moments for granted in the sense that, you know, if this is our last conversation together, then I'm coming into this, into this hour that we're having with all of my energy. I want to make sure that I pass every single bit of information to you so that our time together can be a full experience, if that makes sense at all. Yeah, it it makes perfect sense. And I think that 
a takeaway here. I mean, it's hard enough to be present when you're doing trivial things. I mean, anyone who's ever done like meditation practice knows that it's hard enough to just sit still and close your eyes for 10 seconds without thinking of anything. It's surprisingly challenging if you've ever done that. Mm -hmm. I wonder how do you stay present under that kind of stress, right? If most human beings cannot be present and intentional in the most trivial of circumstances, you know, it's hard for us to be present walking down the street or buying the groceries or checking our email. How is it possible to keep that intention and that mindfulness when we're confronted with our own mortality? Probably one of the most stressful experiences that most of us will ever have. Yeah, you know, I, I think that to do it constantly throughout a day is almost like impossible. It's just part of it is just the way that our minds work. But I think if you stop in moments, you know, during moments of your day and kind of just to reflect on what, you know, what you did and continue to reflect on what you want to do, that helps to kind of like develop the practice so that it gets easier and easier and maybe ideally extends more and more, you know, to your day. Yeah, I would, I would say that that's probably the, the major thing. Like I know right now, one of the things that I do constantly is a friend had given me this thing called the five minute journal. And basically like the journal, like tells you to list three things in the beginning of the day that you're grateful for. And then three things that you want to accomplish in the, during the day and then an affirmation. And then at the end of the day, you're basically trying to see if, you know, what three things actually happened. And then one thing that you feel you could have done better. So that's kind of like a practice that I have in the beginning of my day and the end of my day. You know, what's interesting is that sounds kind of like the software and process practice that we call Kaizen, where basically you build this performance loop where every day you assess, you know, you come in with a plan of what you want to do and you do it and you assess how it went, and then you reflect on what you could have done better and what you should do the next time around. Exactly. That's exactly it. And it's not about winning or losing, right? Some days you win, some days you lose, some days you just don't get anything done. That's fine. It's all about making sure that you go through the process so that at the end of the day, you reflect and you figure out, look how, regardless of how great or terrible this day was, how can I be just a little bit better the next day? Mm Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And that, I think, is one of the best ways to kind of create a a practice of living with intention. Well, let me ask a question on this when it comes to living with intention. Do you do any sort of formal practice in terms of mindfulness or living with intention? Do you meditate or do yoga or anything like that? Or is it basically just jujitsu? Oh, yeah. You know, have you ever seen that movie Ghost Dog? (laughs) You know what? It's so funny that you would bring that up because I've got the feeling that if you ask that question to about a hundred people, maybe a thousand people, most of them would say no. But yes, I have seen Ghost Dog starring Forrest Whitaker. I have seen this movie. <laughs> right, right. So you know about the the book that he mentions in that, the Hagakure, The Way of the Samurai. I don't recall what it is, but I re- should we explain this movie for listeners or should we just leave this as like an Easter egg that maybe some people will go off and explore? <laughs> Yeah, let's let's leave it as an Easter egg. Let's leave it, but I'm but I'm gonna give I'm gonna give the name. So Ghost Dog is definitely a cult classic that you should check out with Forrest Whitaker. It's got some amazing beats by 
by the RZA in there. But the book that he references is called the Hagakure by uh, Yamamoto Tsune Tomo. And it's basically like a book that's written like with little blurbs and it just kind of like describes like the way of the samurai. And there's this really cool quote that I pulled out just for this meeting. It says, the way of the samurai is found in death. Meditation on inevitable death should be performed daily. Every day when one's body and mind are at peace, one should meditate upon being ripped apart by arrows, rifles, spears, and swords, being carried away by surging waves, being thrown into the midst of a great fire, being struck by lightning, being shaken to death by a great earthquake, falling from thousand foot cliffs, dying of disease or committing seppuku at the death of one's master. And every day without fail, one should consider himself as dead. This is the substance of the way of the samurai. And so when I think about that quote, like I always reflected the first time I heard it, like why would somebody meditate on death in that way? And the obvious conclusion for me was when you're not afraid of experiencing any of those things, you go into life without fear. You're not, you don't have the fear of, of acting. And I think a lot of times, you know, that's, that's one of the biggest things that prevents us from, you know, performing any, any kind of major ambition that we have or thing that we think requires a large amount of bravery, for instance, you know, like I, I do wingsuit based jumping, which if you've seen the videos of that is one of the scariest, craziest thing that one can do. And well, you know, I decided to do this before I even had cancer, but because I had cancer, like I was less afraid and more intentional to try to like speed up that process. And so, you know, like those types of meditations, like on a daily basis, kind of like, you know, help you to kind of go through life with that intention and without that fear, which I think is a huge, a huge plus. So this is the thing that I find fascinating about your story. You know, if, you Google Daniel Rodriguez, what you're going to find is a bunch of photos and videos of this lunatic, like base jumping and diving out of planes and arm barring people and doing jujitsu in the air while falling out of a plane. <laughs> and it's, it's weird when you think about it. Cause you know, when I saw those videos, the first thing I thought was I would never do that. Like I would be terrified of doing that. But then now that I listen to you speak, I realized the absurdity of that, right? Because which of the two of us, has been closer to death, right? I have been extraordinarily lucky in my life, whereas you've had to stare the reaper in the face here, and you're the one who's going out there and has doing this stuff because you're the one who has learned that lesson. And I find that uh, that excerpt from the Hagakure to be super fascinating where you're talking about the importance of meditating on death and ultimately how that can make you bold to enjoy life. It's one of those weird paradoxes about being alive, right? And mm -hmm. you're right. When I when I think about it, most people, we don't ever think of death. And in fact, when it comes up, our first reaction is to push it as far out of our minds as fast as we possibly can. As people who are alive, maybe this is a coping mechanism, but we hate thinking about death. We hate even acknowledging that it's a thing. When we have to talk about it, it's 
a world-altering tragedy, and we're happy as can be when we can go back to talking about things as normal. And it's weird because death is one of the only things in human life that all of us are guaranteed to experience, right? I mean, how much time do we spend stressing about romantic partners or jobs or financial situations or family arguments or stuff like that? That stuff that some of us might experience, some of us might not, we all have a different story. Mm -hmm. But the only thing that we really all truly experience guaranteed is death. And we intentionally avoid thinking about it because it's scary. And what you're telling me here and what you've told me from Samurai Wisdom is that it would actually be in our best interests to embrace this and meditate on it and think about it because comfort with the inevitable gives us the courage to live the way that we should live today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think also a lot of times we don't think about death because we as a society, like there's just been so many improvements in terms of medicine, right? And just lifestyle and, you know, people aren't dying at the age of 30 like they did, you know, 300 years ago from like a little cut or whatever. So because it's not in your face and not, not even just death of humans, but just death in any, any respect, Mm -hmm. like unless you are working on a farm, people don't know what death is, you know, like in, with respect to like animals, for instance. Right. Mm -hmm. And so all of this insulation, like we're, in our lives in general, we're always looking for levels of insulation. So death is probably like, we're probably most insulated from death. And then we kind of, you know, the next layer on top of that is risk, risk of death, and then risk of anything, you know? And then the thing that prevents us from going deeper into any of those is like fear at each of those levels. Like, oh, I'm afraid that this is gonna happen. So I'm not gonna take a chance at doing x you know like oh like being in front of crowds makes me nervous so i'm not ever going to put myself in that situation but you know it's it's weird it's like when you when you live just at the edge of your comfort zone you kind of learn more stuff about yourself so it's death is like the final of all of those but you know like when you're when you're going levels outside of that it's like levels of risk and which levels of risk that i am willing to take but yeah if you can if you can cope with the death the death portion of it which we are all most scared of then a lot of the other ones just kind of start to fold apart you know granted my life experience is a lot less intense than the stuff that you're describing but one thing i can relate to is being afraid to do something because you're afraid of losing something. And at some point when you're confronted with that fear for long enough and it holds you back for long enough, if you're lucky, at some point you'll just say, fuck it. (laughs) And and you'll kind of do a total 180 and you'll do what needs to be done. And if I'm being retrospective here, every good thing that's happened in my life has come from hitting that fuck it moment. You know, there were times when... I was afraid to be social because I was afraid of social rejection. And at some point I just got so frustrated with that. I would just say, fuck it. And I just go out and do it. And there were times when I was, you know, afraid to 
try to succeed in certain areas of my life, like on my job. And I was afraid that I wasn't qualified and I didn't have what was required to get where I wanted to go. And that held me back and prevented me from taking chances. But then after enough frustration builds up over the years, eventually you have that fuck it moment where you just realize, you know what, I'm just going to try this. And every good thing that's happened in my life has come from crossing that threshold and realizing at some point, I've just got to try this. You know, Mm -hmm. the, the consequences of not trying and never achieving anything are worse than the consequences of trying and failing. And staring at death, I, I have to imagine, is one of those things that wakes you up and makes you realize that you need to be bold. And, you know, there are times in my life where, you know, I lost years of my life in terms of moving towards my goals because I was afraid. And seeing the stuff that you do on a daily basis makes me wonder, was this a wake-up experience And what can the rest of us take away from this? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it was a wake-up experience. And the interesting thing is there are, there were a lot of different opportunities that I potentially have that I just never exposed myself to them. Does that make sense? Definitely, definitely. It's like you, if I understand correctly, you're, you're kind of saying, and you tell me if I'm wrong, it's not even that you didn't, you know, you didn't take the bite to see, you know, to see if it was an opportunity, but rather you didn't even look. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, so here's something crazy that you talk about bucket moments. So the summer after I found out that I had cancer, I told my job that I was no longer going to be coming into the office. And I was, you know, I was contracting at this company and my manager was like surprisingly fine with it. He was like, yeah, no, don't, no, no problem. You know, like we love your work. We love you. You know what I'm saying? Anything that you need, let us know. Here's a hotspot so that you can, you know, log into the company VPN anytime you need to. And, you know, just keep doing good work and, and, and try to try to get healthy again. And that blew me away because I was just like, oh, now I can work from anywhere in the world. And that's, you know, the, the following year I, I was basically traveling, you know, all over the world base jumping, you know, still working so that I could support myself. That's just an opportunity that I would have never considered before. And because I had cancer, I wasn't afraid to just kind of approach that opportunity, you know? So that was a a huge eye opener for me, you know, and and I've tried to use that kind of example in other areas of my life. That degree of perspective, I think is something that we can all benefit from, you know, and I've had this too, where sometimes if something really big happens in my life, the day-to-day things that used to take up all of my attention, they suddenly become less important. And I'm, I'm much more willing to confront them head on. You know, I'm much more willing to have a very, very difficult conversation with someone that I've been avoiding if something big happened in my life because it puts perspective in place. And I realized that this thing that I've been wasting all of my mental bandwidth on in the grand scheme of things, it's insignificant. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's small of me as a person and as a human to try to avoid it. And I'm best just hitting it head on. And sometimes that perspective of like a bigger thing and understanding exactly how big the stakes can be in other areas of life and in other areas of the universe, it kind of wakes you up to realize that like a lot of the problems we put off, we would be better off just dealing with them. And often the consequences Mm -hmm. are not as scary as we thought that they would be. I would actually ask, because you mentioned that it's been a long time since your diagnosis, how are things doing today? 
Oh, so we're we're good. As of the last two years, I had a major liver surgery back in 2018. So so yeah, like everything everything is good as of as of late. But <laughs> but it's always funny because I've spoken to like future planning being one of the biggest hurdles of this whole thing. And two years is, has always been like the mark when something some new reoccurrence has happened. So like, I'm always trying to like be optimistic, but then at the same time, like my realistic side of me kind of comes out and just be like, well, don't be too optimistic just in case some, you know, some shit happens again or whatever. Mm -hmm. How's your training going? So, you know, this, this is interesting up until this point, we've kind of been speaking with respect to if you've got goals, then go out there and be intention and do them. Right. The other side of this whole experience that I've dealt with and it kind of like speaks to with everybody's the only worth right now is the periods where I was actually under under treatment. So I actually had to self quarantine and couldn't actually participate in any of the activities that I love to do. So, you know, like I said, there was I've had five treatments. Each of those treatments I've subsequently had to take like four to six months off of training, depending on, you know, what the recovery was or the procedure was or, or, or what have you. Actually, in some cases, I had to take up to six months off. Right now, I'm actually under my longest layover because while I'm not in treatment, for me, the risk of training right now just didn't kind of like balance with the reward. So I just kind of like have been doing a bunch of stuff training wise on my own in my, in my gym downstairs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting how different life experiences can alter your perspective. I remember when I was much younger and I was, you know, a white or a blue belt and I fell in love with jujitsu just like everyone did. And I would train through anything. Like I would, you know, be in the middle of a sparring session and I'd break my toe and I just keep going. <laughs> you know, I was just a, to a total yeah. idiot about it. But now with this whole pandemic thing going on, I mean, I'm, I'm the father of a young girl, you know, my, my family is getting older. I've got to start thinking about consequences and not just what I want to do. And I've been put in the mm -hmm. situation where I've made a similar decision and I've, you know, it's been a long time since I've been to class. It's been, I guess about almost a year now and I miss it. You know, I miss it so much, but I have a degree of perspective and clarity of decision-making and I, I just can't justify it. Right. I mean, I know that everyone has to make their own decisions, but for me seeing kind of this bigger picture, I'm looking at all of the things I do and I'm thinking like jujitsu, you know, yeah, I know I'm a black belt and I've been training for so long and I know I do this BJJ mental models thing, but I just, I can't justify it. I can't go onto the mats. I can't, I cannot do it. It's just a matter of almost principle at this point. Whereas yeah. like, I, I guess for you, you know, having been through what you've been through, you now have this clarity of perspective in it. I'm sure for you, this is probably an easier decision than for some. Well, you know, I don't know if I would say it's an easier decision. It's interesting when you, your identity is associated also with like an activity like you completely understand how enthusiastic people get about this this art the same can be applied to any art that people are enthusiastic about and it's the initial moment when it's kind of like pulled away from you or taken from you it, that could be difficult <laughs> that could be the, the transition could be difficult i think because i've had to do it a couple of times I've found subsequently other activities to just kind of like 
get involved in. But this last, this last treatment that I did, I have implants. So a lot of my jujitsu training was pared down and my judo training was pared down because I couldn't get thrown because they didn't want to make, there was impact to any of the implants, you know, they could get damaged, which would be very bad, but also any other, like I can't skydive because of the altitude affects the implants and I can't scuba dive because the pressure affects the implants. So it's weird. It's just like, damn, I can't do anything. I can't do any of this fun shit that I used to do. So now what am I going to do? <laughs> and, or actually just figuring it out. Number one, see, to see if you can do something else is one thing, but also just kind of like meditating on the fact that maybe your experience with that activity at that particular time was all you were going to have, right? So did you enjoy it? Did you live it to the fullest? Because, you know, it's like at some point we're all going to get old and we're not going to be able to do all the shit that we did right now. And that's actually one of the reasons why, like, I wanted to travel as much as I did as a young man because of the fact that as an old man, you're not going to be able to do crazy epic hikes and stuff. So, but it's not, it's not something that works infinitely. So at some point there is a process of letting go that, you know, all of us have to deal with. I think what makes that more, more difficult is whether it's a gradual process or it's a very kind of like acute, immediate kind of situation, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I think this pandemic is a great example of where it was a very acute thing. You know, there was one day in March where life was basically moving along as normal. And then there was another day <laughs> where yeah. I couldn't go into the office. I couldn't go to jujitsu. I couldn't leave the house. I couldn't find toilet paper. I couldn't find Lysol wipes. Like the whole world changed overnight. And right. I don't know which approach is better, right? Because on one hand, it's kind of nice to just get it all over with at once. But on the other hand, you know, a little bit of preparation time would have been nice, I guess, as well. And yeah, I wonder, what, yeah. what are your thoughts on this? Is it is it better to kind of have that gradual ramping down or is it better to just rip off the Band-Aid? <laughs> I don't really know. Or is there no good answer? <laughs> There's really no good answer. Because the thing is, is like you talked about missing it, right? And I don't think it's like your relationship to it. It's like, it could be like a nice reminiscing type of miss, or it could be like, damn, like, like a depressing type miss when you think about it, mm -hmm. you know? So it really just kind of takes a certain maturity level when you're meditating on it to just be like, Hey, that was, that was that part of my life, you know? And, you know, when I think you had set this in clubhouse, when one door closes, another one opens. So, mm -hmm. you know, look for that opening. And it's not to say that you can't participate in that activity in some respect. You may not be able to participate in, in it in the way that you did before. Like, you know, athletes become coaches, commentators, writers on the subject, historians on the subject. But just, you know, realizing that it's, there's a transitionary period right now that that's happening. Yeah. Well, that's one of the hard things about growing old, right, is you see all of these doors close in front of you that you used to go through all of the time, you know, and jujitsu is a great example. A lot of people who, you know, they're in their competitive prime in their 20s, they continue to compete in their 30s. Eventually, that door starts to close. And right. when that happens, and that's going to happen regardless, right? Eventually, yep. all of the options and the world of possibilities and probabilities that are open to you when you're young, every day, another one of those closes. 
And eventually you get to the point where you see like a narrowing of focus and you have to start, like you, you said, you have to start shedding some of the activities you used to do because you simply can't do them anymore. And it's sad that you had to do that when you're so young. The thing that I always tell people though, I mean, I'm not an athlete and I'm always training with these guys who are. <laughs> the thing that I always keep in mind is give it enough years and you're going to be in the same boat as me, right? It's only a matter of time. Mm-hmm. You might be a world beater at 25, but one day we're both going to be old ass men sitting on the mats and we're both going to suck at this. <laughs> and We're yeah, both going to be afraid yeah. to hurt. And that's, you know, age catches up to all of us and you have choices, right? You can either age out of this gracefully and you can look for ways to take what you know and open a new door. Like you said, find a new thing that you can Mm -hmm. do to provide value, or you can just try to cling on to what you've lost. And I think the latter is usually never a good thing to do, right? It's always better to try to figure out when the door closes, okay, how can I open a new door? How can I use what I've got to be valuable and find purpose in a different way? And that's something that I, I think especially in sports, too many people try to cling to the glory days. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that like pro athletes are the ones that have it the worst. It's not just the the sport that I'm sure they love. It's also the lifestyle that they're dealing with as well. Like they are the center of attention all their life, especially if they've, they've been doing this since high school, coming from like a, you know, like a football city or football town or whatever, all all the way to their professional level. Now they can't play the game anymore. Now they're not the center of attention anymore. And unless you can transition over into something that, you know, that well, hopefully you're educated because a lot of times, like, you know, these systems tend to just kind of, you know, <laughs> just strip you and rip you apart before you even get any any education in your own light. But hopefully you're able to transition to something, you know, if you're not. So I, I always wonder, like, you know, what do a lot of professional athletes tend to do because of all all of those factors and how they deal with that stuff mentally? Yeah, it's it's a hard thing. I mean, we talk to a lot of these guys, right, and girls, and mm-hmm. it's, it's a challenge when you have spent your entire young adult life focusing on a goal and then at you know, maybe the age of even 30, it's time to move on and it's time to think about something different. And I can see how that can instill a, a crisis of confidence, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and we're all going to have that moment eventually, right? It's just a matter of when we're all going to have that moment where we realize the doors are starting to close and what do we do then? And I mean, mm-hmm. I guess something that you had discussed earlier was this concept of meditating on on death. And I'd love to know, do you have any thoughts on that? Any suggestions on that? Any advice on that? Like, how do you, how do you even do that process? Well, when I was doing it specifically for base jumping, I would just think about all the worst case scenarios. I mean, in general, like I, I try to think about all the worst case scenarios, just, just from a preparation point of view, but you know, the mind and the imagination have this crazy thing of sending you down these rabbit holes. And, you know, just uh, number one, realizing that the things that you imagine may actually not come about, but also the preparation aspect. I think just thinking about the stuff sometimes and and sitting with it uh, helps, you know, like, you know, we're, we're talking about meditations on death, but, you know, a lot of it also is, you know, kind of points to the themes of the stuff that we were talking about before, because risk in itself 
and adversity risk is, is a form of like resistance, right? So there's this resistance aspect and then, and then there's also this attachment aspect, which is the, the other side where you have something you love and you don't want to lose it, right? So meditating on things that, that you fear, i.e. You're, you're trying to resist from your body and meditating on the things that you find comfort in or attachment in, that's the other aspect of the, the meditations for me. And then just kind of like the last one is just, you know, ultimate just meditations on not, not even being here and just observing what life looks like without you here and just kind of sitting with it. You know, a lot of a lot of those things, you know, we attach to our ego. You know, I watched the cosmos that was on the show that was on Netflix I was just, is this the Neil deGrasse Tyson one? Yeah. I was just watching that like a day or two ago. So you, you watch that, right? And you think about how insignificant you are on a, on a micro and a macro scale. It's just like, why, what am I worrying about? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, like in the grand scheme of things, it's like you, you're not a son, but the very most that you can be is a like a spark on the surface of this planet. Just try to be as bright as you can, you know, when you when you pop. That's kind of like like a quote that I've created that I just think about every every now and then. But yeah, like those three things are the main things that I kind of like think about and sit with and and just kind of like figure out like what my relationship is to each of those subjects and just trying to like remove my ego from it when I do think about it. And that's so hard to do, right? I mean, we are creatures of ego and it's so hard to think of a world where we don't exist, which is like you said, it's, it's kind of silly when you think about it because we know, you know, we're such a small part of what's out there. You know, there's 7 billion of us and that's just our species that doesn't even get into everything else that's alive. And that doesn't even Mm -hmm. get into the stuff going on beyond our planet, right? There is such a vast universe of things out there and we're such a small part of it. But in our little brains, we are the center of that universe. And it's so hard for us to imagine what the world would be like if we, you know, just didn't exist, right? If we were just mm-hmm. not part of that world anymore. And I I think that that's a really interesting meditation that is probably worth thinking about because if, if nothing else, you know, if nothing else, I mean, of course, we don't want to die. But if nothing else, learning to be detached from your own fears has to be good for you, right? It has yeah. to at least prevent you from getting stuck and being afraid to do the things that you probably should do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, or at the very minimum, I think we'll provide some creativity, you know, towards another, towards, an, you know, in a particular subject, I think, I think a lot of creativity is created from meditating on, on these subjects to prevent death in certain respects and, or protect people and, or find various ways of joy, you know, like we're, I don't think we're, we're done evolving yet. So, yeah. Well, let me ask you a final question here. What does life look like for you today? In terms of like what what context? Just in general. I mean, what's what's your mindset like? 
how are things going? What kind of philosophy do you bring day to day? What kind of activities do you do? Yeah. So, you know, in terms of the, the meditation stuff, I am still continuing that practice of gratitude, I think is the best way to describe it, where I, I reflect on things that happen in the morning and in the evening that I described earlier. I still do that on a daily basis. I'm still trying to figure out how to navigate this pandemic, just like the rest of the world is in terms of maintaining relationships, having some degree of enjoyment slash fun. And then I'm also, which has always been a difficult thing, trying to figure out like what the future holds in terms of, or, or how far into the future is a respectable amount of time to prepare for. Just because, you know, even though I'm good right now, it can, there's always a potential for a recurrence. And I'm, I'm not 100% over like the, I guess the trauma of kind of like recurrences just yet. So those are kind of like the biggest things. Also just in terms of activities, I guess trying to find activities that are not so not so sensory that don't evoke such a huge sensory overload within within somebody like or within myself or require a certain amount of sensory stimulation and in that sense just trying to get just trying to get okay with learning how to be bored and learning how to be just kind of like silent and chill if that makes sense <laughs> it's kind of like the opposite extreme of where I came from. And I think it's just an interesting exercise to attempt, especially since now, you know, we're being deprived of so many things, but then at the same time, trying to substitute them with other forms of stimulation. So yeah, trying to be stimulated. Yes. Less, I guess. It's funny you bring that up because I can actually completely relate to that. I mean, just as you know, now I'm the father of a young toddler and I sort of see that there's this, like cycle of maybe not a cycle, but like a, a phases of stimulation that you require in your life. Mm -hmm. Like when you're a four year old, you need constant stimulation to keep your attention. You just can't focus on anything. Right. And as a young adult, it gets better, but you still need to have a lot on the go, right? You need to have, you need to be constantly kept busy. And I always wondered when I was younger, when you look at these old people who just, you know, they sit in the chair and they just stare at the wall all day. Like I always thought, man, that seems like a, really miserable existence but i'm at the age now where i look at that and i'm like that sounds awesome <laughs> you know just yeah, like I, had a, I look at my cat and i'm just like my cat just like stares into the air like <laughs> he sees like a bird and all of a sudden he just like his ears pop up and he's just like looking at the bird and his tail is like flipping by by and then he'll just like he'll do that for like you know five minutes or whatever and then just go back to sleep and it's just yeah it's just amazing. It is amazing. I mean, I remember thinking that, you know, the the sign to a good life and that you were a mover and shaker was that you were constantly just being stimulated by stuff and you had so much on the go. And I thought that just sitting around at home was boring and lame. But now as I get older, I realize like that is that is the ultimate to be able to live in the present moment and, and enjoy the present moment without any requirement of external stimulation, you know, kind of to be like master Yoda, you know, in a lot of ways mm -hmm. that, that to me is now I'm, I'm starting to see that that is actually the goal is to be satisfied with what is and not with all of these artificial constraints that we think are important. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, and it's it's tough too because there's a there's a bunch of factors. You know, as somebody who's working who works in the computer industry, like they essentially gave us a, a slot machine in our telephones, right? So it's like we're constantly like going back to them, and so you know, it's it's a it's a difficult type of programming to break <laughs> to break free. In. It really is, and I I would love to actually talk just at length about this specifically about how. Our modern society, to engage in society and to, to really live in society, we are expected to live in this world of constant stimulation. And the phone is a great example, right? I mean, people talk about, you know, your social media and your phones in almost this malicious fashion about how, you know, they're trying, they're trying to always get your attention. Well, that's just kind of just, that's everyday life, right? Everything right. is always trying to get our attention. Our phone is just a very visible example of that. Mm-hmm. And learning to detach from technology and social media and take control of it and make it work for you is a very hard thing to do. And it's a challenge because the modern world wants you to be beholden to these processes and devices. And it's very hard to actually step back and be like, no, I'm turning off my notifications at 5 p.m. I'm not right. gonna check my phone. Like any anyone who's listening, you wanna have a fun experiment, try locking your phone in like a safe or a box for an hour and see what that does to your psychology. (laughs) Like it's really, (laughs) really hard to do. That's the attachment piece right there, right? We're just like so attached to like these devices. I mean, they provide so much, they provide us with so much, but. Yeah, I I don't want to, I don't want to get into a conversation about badgering how bad this stuff is because no one can deny the miracle of these devices, right? Like you and I are able to talk in basically real time and we're going to be able to blast this recording out to thousands, maybe tens of thousands or more of people. And this is all enabled because of this technology, but there's no denying that all of this stuff can also be a distraction for being, being present and being intentional, as you said at the beginning of this episode and being with your Mm -hmm. family. Like how many times have you, you know, sat there at dinner with your family or sat on the couch with your family and you're oblivious to the fact that they're even there because you're all just there right. on your phone. And I'm I'm definitely yeah. guilty of that, right? I think we all are. And I hope that, you know, one thing that I took away from this conversation and that I hope that everyone else does too is to attempt to be a little bit more intentional with the time that we have. Yeah, definitely. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for, for joining us. Any closing thoughts before we tie this thing up? No, I just wanted to, you know, thank you for the opportunity to chat. And, you know, I'm thank Emily out there for, for linking us up and I look forward to more to more discussions in the future, either now or in other platforms. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And if people want to get in touch with you, ask you questions, talk about their experience or your experience, what's the best way for people to connect? I have a Twitter. It's Akume, A-K-U-M-E. That's the best platform to get in contact with me. I used to have a, Dakume was my, my Instagram one, but I, I haven't been on there in a long time. So I would probably say the Twitter one. I find Instagram hard because I'm expected to constantly take pictures and I suck at that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I feel like there's this pressure to, you know, frame shots perfectly. And I'm a garbage photographer. So I feel like for Instagram, it's, it's a challenge because I simply lack the skill set to be good on that platform. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Well, Daniel, again, thank you so much for reaching out to us again. If you want to reach out to Daniel Akume, A-K-U-M-E on Twitter. Daniel, thanks so much. I really do appreciate it. 
I've got a lot to think about coming out of this episode, so I'm definitely going to be doing that. And of course, if anyone wants to get in touch with us, bjjmentalmodels.com. That's the website where we've got a database of all of the concepts we talk about here on the show. That's also where you can go if you want to contact us or if you want to get on our mailing list. Highly recommended if you do. And of course, for those who don't already do so, please do consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash bjjmentalmodels. That's the single best way that you can help support us here on the show. It takes a lot of time and actually money to keep the lights on. So really do appreciate you helping us with this enterprise. If you haven't already done so, please do consider supporting us there. Again, that's patreon.com slash bjjmentalmodels. Daniel, thank you again so much for joining us. Really greatly appreciated. Lots of insights here on this conversation. It was helpful to me. Hope it's also helpful to all of the listeners. So thank you again. Thank you. All right. Then thanks everyone for listening. And uh, I guess we'll talk to you next week. Bye.